Are you conscious of your addiction? Refuse to be defined by it? Not satisfied with living your life on the surface? Are you drawn to deeper meaning and purpose? And believe that it's possible to grow through your addiction to experience true freedom? Well, welcome home. Share the journey from addiction to freedom with your host, Michael Gregory. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of From Addiction to Freedom. Today, I'm extremely excited to introduce Professor Susan Shapiro, who is one of, uh, I'd have to say, very prolific writer. She's uh, written, appeared in over 100 publications, including the New York Times, the New York Magazine, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, LA Times. In fact, there's a, a list of all the known publications that you could probably think of there. She's written over, uh, she's written 14 books and, and received awards, uh, literary awards, and including award at New York University and, and New School. And she teaches at Columbia University. And also she has private classes where she actually teaches writing and, and publication, particularly with her course, uh, Instant Gratification Takes Too Long. So the reason why I've invited her onto the onto this show is because she's actually written a couple of books on addiction, and this is really coming out of her own experience of addiction. So I'm really interested to to understand her journey. So welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for taking the time to to join us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So I was intrigued. I don't meet many people who who are smoking two packs a day at the age of thirteen. So I, mean, I was intrigued to 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 ask how that what was that what was that like what was what was it like for you as a thirteen year old and how did that come about that you were smoking that much? Yeah, it's funny. I wrote a, I write a lot about um, origin in my um, a memoir called Lighting Up: How I Stopped Smoking, Drinking, and Everything Else I Loved in Life Except Sex. Um, I think what happened was my father was a smoker. And I think in a way he was maybe the most powerful. He was a brilliant physician. Maybe he was the most powerful in the household. So I definitely, we both had dark hair and we had a lot in common. So, so I think the first cigarette I smoked was his. And uh, I think that's how it started. And what happens is very addictive personality. And my mother, who I adore, was an orphan. And she, I mean, in her head, if there was enough food on the table, everything was fine and everything had been fine for decades, but she still had too much food. So I think what I loved about cigarettes at the time, 13, because you're superficial and you care about your figure is when, when I would smoke, I would, I wouldn't eat. So it was like an appetite depressant. So I wasn't really conscious of what was going on at the time, but I, you know, I had some older friends who used to smoke and dad smoked. So it seemed cool. So I would steal his cigarettes and I got addicted very quickly. I also uh, did a summer school program in Europe where everybody was smoking and I was the youngest and I was hanging out with 18 year olds. So I just, I don't know, I just took to it and I loved it. And it just, you know, it started slow and then it just uh, steamrolled. And I also right around that time had friends that were getting high. So I started smoking dope. So I really, really liked the combination of cigarettes <laughs> and uh, dope. Yeah. And, and then alcohol got thrown into the mix and cocaine and it just, uh, I, I don't think I realized at the time how many problems it was solving because I would feel calmer and I wouldn't eat as much and I would feel cool and I was more socially, you know, I was more yeah. socially together, you know, so I felt like, uh, you know, it just, I wasn't paying attention, but it all steamrolled. And truthfully, it was, 
27 years later, I'm 41 years old and I can't get anything I want in life. And I see this therapist who says to me, you know, the reason you can't get anything you want is because you're clogging up your brain with all these addictions for 27 years. Yeah. And I, couldn't, I was having trouble in my marriage. I was having trouble, couldn't get a book published. I was unhappy. I was having just a lot of issues. And he basically said to me that if you quit smoking, because that was the big addiction that was, you know, omnipresent because it was so often every day. He yeah. said, if you do everything I say and quit smoking, I'm going to, you'll get like, I, the, my, the biggest thing I wanted was a book deal and I yeah. couldn't get, it was making me crazy. And he said, if you quit smoking and do everything I say and see me once a week, I will help you within a year, publish a book. And right. I had a reason to trust him. So I trusted him. And then by the end of the year, I was done with cigarettes, alcohol, dope, and I had sold three books to Random House, and I thought I found God. <laughs> wow. Wow. So that's a major transformation. And I understand it when you met Dr. Winters and started therapy with him, that was 27 years after, after you'd picked up a cigarette, I suppose. So a lot of time in between when you, you know, you were, your addiction was a big part of your life. Right. And what happened was I was seemingly successful. So, I mean, I graduated college and graduate school. I had a lot of friends. I did marry a wonderful man who I'm very happy with 25 years later. So it didn't appear as if, you know, and, and I was also hanging out with artist crowds in New York City, which were, you know, everybody was smoking and drinking and toking. So yeah. it didn't appear as if, if you saw me, you wouldn't have thought there was a problem. I was freelancing for all the good newspapers. I was teaching. So it wasn't it wasn't the kind of addiction where I was like, you know, in the gutter. It was it was, yeah. it, you know, I was very, very highly functioning addict. Yeah. But I, you know, I didn't understand that, there, you know, I hit a wall and I was never going to be able to really get the true things that I wanted most unless I looked at that and, and got off everything. Right, right. So, so you I didn't even know there was such thing as a one on one addiction therapy. Because usually what you hear is you hear, you know, there's sort of like these Hazleton rehab clinics people go to, or you hear about AA meetings. I didn't even realize that there were therapists who specialize in addiction, who you could pay one-on-one -on -one to unravel your addiction. So that was kind of a miracle to even find someone because I didn't know that existed. Yeah, right. Right. So you're very, you, so you didn't, for a long time, you probably didn't think that there was a problem and it was just a lifestyle and everybody else was similar so and and you were you were successful in in what you were doing in your career at the time so it didn't seem like there was a problem is that well, I would try to you know I would try to quit cigarettes because obviously I can read and I knew that you know and I knew that they weren't good for you but I would try to quit and I would go insane so I yeah. would be probably I would seem fine and calm and my life was working and then I would quit cigarettes and I would literally break out in sweats or freak out or you know eat 57 carrots in a row. Like, like I would just do crazy things when I quit. And it's interesting yeah. because eventually, so I wrote a book on hooked with the addiction specialist eventually that was a New York times bestseller, but that we started at the very beginning with how can you tell if it's a habit or an addiction? And the way you could tell is quit doing it. And if you quit right. you're in pain, that's a really good sign that it's an addiction. Whereas if you could just, you know, if you say, Oh, I, um, I get stoned once in a while, or I eat donuts once in a while, or I like to drink. If you just could quit doing it for a few weeks and it doesn't bother you, then the chances it's not a problem and it's just a habit. But right. if it 
causes you pain, that's a really good way of saying, "Uh oh, I've taken this too far. This is in a place of addiction." Yeah, yeah, that that's uh, that's a good insight to be able to distinguish just a regular behavior from something that becomes an addiction. So tell me about the work you did with Dr. Winters and how did that, um, I suppose it, you, know, you said that at one point, what you needed to do was understand yourself better and have a change in attitude. So I, I'm assuming that he really helped you you with that. Can you kind of share a little bit about that journey or how that worked for you? Well, so what happened was after I got married, my husband turned to me and said, now you have to quit smoking, drinking and partying. And I thought he was joking. And I'm like, well, the whole time we went out off and on for six years, you would light my cigarettes for me and light my joints for me. And we drank together. So what are you, are you crazy? I'm like, if you would have told me that while we were dating, I would have never gone out with you. He goes, I know that now that we're living together and we committed to each other. I hate the smell of smoke. I hate drug addicts around my house. And I want you to live long and you have to quit. Right. So I tried a few things and I just went insane. And it turned out that a therapist that he had seen in the past, it turned out was an addiction specialist. And right. this was someone we had seen once or twice as a couples therapist who helped us get married. So I, he was the one who told my husband that he had to marry me now. And so I sort of liked the guy. Anyway, so I didn't realize that his reason in substance abuse. So Charlie said to me, my husband said to me, would you consider seeing him one-on-one -on -one just to try addiction? So I thought, you know, okay, I'll try it because I already liked him and I thought he was on my side. And then that, the first session, he basically gave me an ultimatum. He said, you know, I told him I didn't, you know, all the problems I was having, especially with un being unable to get a um, to get a book published. And that's when he said to me, if you do everything I say, come to me once a week, you do everything I say for a year you're going to, by the end of a year, you're going to be done with the cigarettes and you're going to publish a book. And I had, you know, I had a reason to trust him, even though I thought it was kind of extreme. I told friends and they're like, he sounds insane. Run away yeah. the other way because you know I'm this raging feminist. And he's like this controlling male person yeah. to tell you what to do. And I said, you know what, but I've tried everything else in the world. And he already helped me get married. And he, he himself had been a chain smoker. He said for 20 years and he'd helped a lot of people through addiction. So I thought, let me just try it. And then uh, I just liked everything he said, everything. He just started explaining my life to me. Like he right. just said to me, like he, he explained to me how addicts depend on substances, not people. And how I wasn't really having intimacy with my husband because whenever I get upset, I'd go smoke or toke or drink instead of talk to him. You right. know, and he gave me this weird thing after I quit smoking, like he would give me these weird little rules. Like he said to me, he said, the new rule after I quit smoking was that my husband had to hold me for one hour every night. We would watch, he's in TV film, so we'd watch TV or film. And my husband had to hold me one hour every night without speaking. Wow. And which was such a weird, who would have ever thought of that? But he was, I guess he was a couples therapist also. But it turned out, not only did I find that really soothing, but it yeah. made me so much closer to my husband because instead of reaching for something to calm me down or to chill me out or to make me happy, yeah. All of a sudden, I was sort of transferring the dependency that I had on addictions to my husband. Mm. You know, so there were like a thousand things like that. You know, he, at one mm. point he said to me, I said, I wasn't the least bit depressed. And he said, every beneath every substance problem I've ever seen is a deep depression that feels unbearable. And he mm. said, it's not unbearable, but it feels that way. And yeah. then one time, every time I would quit a substance, when I quit cigarettes, when I quit marijuana, when I quit alcohol, every time I would feel manically depressed again. But he then he also taught me this thing about how to suffer well. So, right. so instead of going insane, 
because I had him as a therapist and because my husband knew what was going on, we really made a, a good plan for what I was going to do, you know, when I was triggered or when, when it hurt, which included everything from the, the nicotine patch really helped me. I stopped going to bars and parties. So I, I stopped being around people that were doing drugs and drinking alcohol. We got rid of all the stuff. I got rid of all the ashtrays, got rid of all the liquor in, in, in my house. I was seeing the shrink not only once a week, but I was allowed to email him whenever I needed to. And he would, you know, talk me down, you know, so there was a whole process that I went through of slowly, um, really, it took a year of slowly getting rid of the dependencies, the, the chemical dependencies, and learning how to depend on people, you know, on, right. on beings. Right. You know, that um, that example that you gave of uh, one of the recommendations of your husband holding you for an hour, I really, I really get how that that would be deeply, deeply soothing, and uh, and maybe you know in a way, touching and, and and supplying places in you that hadn't really been filled for in other ways for you know, a long, long time. Is, is, do you feel that that would would that be true? You know, I think every single person's different, but I do think that when I look back over my relationships before my husband and a lot of breakups and stuff like that, I definitely think that the addictions were getting, had gotten in the way a lot. Yeah. I hadn't been conscious of it at the time, but um, you know, and sometimes I'd be with someone who was a smoker or a drinker and I didn't realize the dynamic underneath it. Like just for an example, one of the things that the, that he explained to me was that the dynamic of, so something negative would happen and it started in childhood something negative would happen in my house. And so instead of dealing with it or crying or being awkward or being uncomfortable, my mother would overfeed it away and my father would smoke it away. And, you know, and, and right. the people were drinking it away. So there was sort of this dynamic where anything awkward or uncomfortable or crazy or weird that happened, the way, the way he put it, which was interesting, is he said the feelings weren't allowed to tell their own story. Right. So instead of letting them unravel, there was a way to make them disappear really quickly or, you know, you know, which is really, you know, a lot of people do that. You you eat it away, you smoke it away, you drink it away, you fuck it away, you know, you shop it away. Like there's all these yeah. mechanisms that an addict will use to to avoid feeling pain and also not even knowing how to how do you deal with pain or how do you deal with hurt? You know, I didn't even know yeah. how to do it, especially at age 13. Yeah. You know, I was just sort of unconscious and grasping at something to make me feel better. So yeah, so it was really interesting at uh, at 41 when I quit everything, and my husband really, really helped me a lot with it, and he started to understand with the help of the doctor, you know, how he could be there for me in a way that would allow me to, um, you know, to quit all the addictions. Yeah, yeah, I can see that the addictions, that the way you're describing it, the addictions were really, in, in a way, helping you to be present in the situation without actually having the skills or the or the opportunity, I suppose, to to face the real problems in that in any particular situation. It was a way exactly, of kind of exactly. coping. Yes, and that the problem was they did such a beautiful job for so long, you know. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm a 13 year old, and uh, I had skipped a couple grades at school, and I was hanging out with an older group of people, and I, you know, took college classes, and I went to Europe, so I was doing all these things that I really didn't know how to handle, and somehow the addictions gave me an armor which yeah. made feel you know, tougher and cooler and stronger. And hey, I could handle this. And it really, like I said, it worked wonders for a while. But then at a certain point, it all added up to it kept getting more extreme. And it all added up to, you know, hitting a wall. 
Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of what, I don't know if you know, Canadian doctor therapist, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. I mean, have you heard of him? No. Uh, well, he's, uh, he's, he has a lot to say about addiction. And one of the things he says is that the addiction itself is, is never the problem. It's actually an attempted solution. And, and that's what I'm hearing here, that the addictions for you were an attempted solution to other situations that you were, you know, in a way, try to handle or, or understand or, or deal with. But at some point that the attempted solution itself started, you know, in, was interfering with your, your ability to grow and progress in, in, in where you wanted to go in life. Yes. Yes. And, yeah. and again, yeah. And I didn't, uh, I didn't understand what was wrong. And I actually had been in therapy to help me with certain things, but I wasn't seeing an addiction specialist, which is really what I needed because yeah. I, somebody that really understood the dynamic of, you know, of how I was hurting myself and, and repressing things. And, you know, it was so, I'll give you an interesting example yeah. was that uh, I was publishing a lot of freelance work. So at first when the therapist said, you know, this is hurting your career and this is why you're not getting what you want, you know, cause I really wanted to do a book and I was helping other people publish books. So I was like the wedding planner who couldn't get married. Cause I just couldn't. <laughs> I, but, you know, for seven years I was getting rejected. And so the, you know, so the addiction specialist said, your addictions are getting in the way of you publishing a book. And I said, well, that's crazy because look, I'm publishing in the New York times and the wall street journal and, yeah. you know, all these great places. So, you know, that, that can't be true. And he said, yeah, but look at what, what's the length of the pieces that you're publishing. And I'm like, they're 500 words or 700 words. And he said, yeah, because you can't, you cannot stay with the narrative longer. You are so impatient that you could finish quickly and get the instant gratification. But he said, you know, the freelancing and getting a clip is the same thing as an addiction. You're not letting your feelings tell their story because I was doing a right. lot of person. So he said, if you could get rid of the cigarettes and pot and the liquor, what would happen is slowly you would allow yourself to stay with emotions that you're writing about much longer and your pieces would get longer and better. And I bet you'd be able to finish a book better. And I right. wasn't sure what I did Oh my God. I mean, mm. now, by the way, not only did I get everything I wanted, I mean, I could literally, I have 15 books out, 16 books out. I mean, I could write, I could write for 10 hours straight, um, you know, wow. I mean, book the forgiveness tour, deep, dark, twisted, every horrible thing that ever happened to me. I could completely stay with it because I learned how to stop, you know, I stopped interrupting negative feelings and I stopped, I stopped having the escape mechanism to get rid of it. And I learned how to cope with it much better. Right. So you actually learned instead of uh, kind of masking or, or, or in a way pushing away the feelings with and using the addiction to kind of be in the situation, you actually were able to, to sit with those feelings and, 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 and really explore them in a way. And then I suppose this is what, this is the kind of solution that, that you came to with uh, Dr. Winters, that he helped you understand and be in touch with your own feelings and even sit with the, the difficult feelings. Yes. And that's what, you know, that was what a lot of the therapy was about, you know, was to unravel where it started, what were the feelings. I mean, I had to, he actually said that in addiction therapy, he often has to, you have to go back to the age when you started using. And so, so in a couple of my books, I really go back to what was going on at age 13 that had me so freaked out that I couldn't cope unless there was some kind of a, um, you know, a chemical, to help me through it. And yeah. so we sort of slowly unraveled it. And I went through what was going on and the hurt that I felt then, 
Yeah. And so, and luckily because he had quit himself and he'd helped so many addicts, like in our book on hooked, how to quit anything, each chapter, he unravels how he helped somebody get off of an addiction. And we're talking about heroin, cocaine, crack, you know, really extreme addictions, you know, raging alcoholic. So he really understood the overview of what was going on and he knew how to help me. And also it's really important that you make a, um, you know, you really, I need really needed an all out assault because I think some people have the illusion, oh, I'll just quit cigarettes tomorrow, you know, or, oh, I'll just quit alcohol. I'll go to a meeting. So yeah. most people that I know, because I've helped quite a few people get off since, you really need an all-out assault. Like you have to change almost everything in your life because if you're hanging out with the same people who are using, you're just going to use. Yeah. You know, there's even studies that show that. They even show like if you're hanging out with friends who are overweight and eating more, you're going to eat more. You know, it's just it's so simplistic. It seems like now, but you really have to change major things in your life and hang out with people who you know understand you know, that you're sober, that you're, you're smoke free and that you have to be careful. You have to understand triggers. I mean, now I understand it just for an example. At one point I had a housekeeper after I quit smoking and and I noticed in her purse, she had cigarettes and it freaked me out because I wanted to go take one. And I, so I emailed the, the addiction specialist and I just said, what do I do? And he said, just go up to her very nicely and say, listen, it's taken me a long time to quit cigarettes. It would mean a lot to me if you could just leave your cigarettes downstairs with the doorman and not have them in my apartment because I have this important rule now that I can't have cigarettes in my apartment. She was like, no problem. Yeah. So here I was one minute away from ruining like years of addiction therapy because somebody brought cigarettes to my house, not even realizing I could just say to somebody nicely, this house, we don't have cigarettes here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I had to learn all these coping mechanisms and, and how do I respond to triggers? And I was very lucky that I had such a great therapist who was very available. Yes. Yeah. And I suppose it's not, it's not just learning kind of behaviors and, and tactics and strategies and, and not just being able to be in touch with, you know, the feelings at the time. But I suppose you, you probably, I'm guessing you had to develop skills in terms of how to actually resolve emotional issues that were coming up or, or different challenges that were coming up that normally you would have put a lid on with, with addiction. But but as you came out of that, you you would have had to develop more, I guess, emotional intelligence, I guess. is that Would that be right? Yeah. And, and just some really specific behavioral techniques, you know, that he helped me with, you know, and I had to be very, very careful with, I had to be very careful with all of my habits. So just for an example, we had a lot, you know, I had to adhere to a lot of rules. So just for an example, I had to do better with eating and sleeping and my social life plans, you know, and there were, there were all these interesting rules that he made. Actually, one of them I wrote about turned out to be really good during the pandemic, which was one of the rules was I make a plan in advance with him using my brain and I'm never allowed to cancel anything because of my mood. Right. So, so, so aside from teaching and works and work, work appointments, it was also that if I, um, if I made an appointment to see a friend at six o'clock, I couldn't at 5.30 just call her and say, I'm not in the mood to do this anymore. And I explained why. And he said, because you have to learn how to let your brain run your life. And for somebody, for an addict, every mood that you have is eventually going to lead you back to using. So you can't can't really listen to that voice. In fact, at one point he said, don't trust your instincts. They're always wrong, which is the opposite of what you hear. But if you're an addict, your instincts are always kind of going to lead you back to using so I had to get to the point where I don't listen to my instincts. I have rules 
and I have my plan for the day and I have my gurus who I speak to, my core pillars, if I'm confused about what to do, is which is he's still available on, even though I don't see him anymore as a, as a doctor, he's still available by email. My husband is available. I have other friends who understand, you know, who are clean and sober, you know, so if I'm upset or if I, if something's going on, you know, I, I know immediately, oh, I'm going to take a walk with this friend who understands. Yeah. You know, I'm going to ask my husband, I'm going to go into his, his office and I'm going to say, sorry to bother you. I'm having a really rough time. Could you hold me now? Yeah. You know, so I have like 25 techniques that'll help me chill out so that I won't, you know, do anything stupid. Yeah. 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 And, and sounds, so those techniques, a lot of them that you mentioned, they're holding, talking with a friend who's, who's sober and obviously, and also your other gurus and things. It sounds to me like that you, you'd learnt to actually kind of explore what was going on or, or be present with what was going on, that normally those moods would have taken you off into addiction, but, but you're able to work with them in a different way. So, for example, if you went walking with a friend and you were needing to do that because you were feeling unbalanced or something, would that conversation that occurred while you were walking would that actually help you rebalance? Is that how it worked? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And remember the line, which is really was which was really important to my recovery, which is addicts depend on substances, not people. Yeah, and right. what's interesting about that is that substances are actually in some ways, substances are so much easier to depend on because you can control it. Yeah. You know, so when you depend on human beings, human beings screw up all the time. In fact, the subject of my book, The Forgiveness Tour, is actually how five years later when I was very, very dependent on the addiction specialist, Dr. Winters, he screwed up and it blew my mind and it blew yeah. my world and I didn't know what to do without him. And actually the whole book, the forgiveness tour was here was somebody who fixed my life and helped me. I mean, he helped me triple my income. He helped me get married. He helped me with my books. And he was so important to me. And the whole book, the forgiveness tour is about, he screwed up. He wouldn't acknowledge it. He wouldn't say he was sorry. And I didn't know how to deal with having this important mentor in my life who couldn't apologize and I wanted to forgive him, but I didn't know how to, how do you forgive somebody who won't apologize? And also I was afraid that I was going to relapse. So I wound up finding all these other gurus, religious leaders and other doctors and, um, and even asking colleagues and friends, can you, can you forgive somebody who doesn't apologize became the yeah. big question. And interestingly, yeah. When I ask people all of the all of the stories that they told me about, tell me about the apology that you're owed that you never got. What was really fascinating was so many of the stories were about addiction. Yes. So it kind of kept bringing me back to how much he'd helped me. You know, for example, there was a man who never forgave his wife because she was an alcoholic who deserted their three children. Yes. And you know, so that yes. so that's a fascinating story. And then there was a story of a man in Michigan, Gary Weinstein, who had to decide whether he could ever forgive the drunk driver who killed his wife and two children. Yeah. And he definitely decided to forgive him publicly. But so that was just a fascinating conversation. And of course I saw myself in that because I had driven drunk and high in the same place in Michigan where I'm from. Wow. You know, so what was really interesting is doing this journey, it kind of brought me back to how important the, the addiction work that I'd done was. And it sort of led me to be able to forgive the doctor, you know, before he came back and apologized to me and told me yeah. what was going on. Well, well, in the in the the book that you that 
what's it called, the Forgiveness Tour, um, that you, your book that I read, the conversation where at the restaurant where, you know, you weren't sure the way that it was portrayed there, you weren't sure how to go about it and because uh, he up until that point hadn't been forthcoming with any admission or anything and you were deeply betrayed and deeply hurt. And what touched me was was when he opened up and started to explain where he was at that time in his own life, the difficulty he was having with his, was it his mother who was sick? And by the way, his wife had a horrible yeah. operation where she had where she had nerve damage and his daughter was sick. So his whole life was falling apart, but he had never yeah. told me what was going on. Yeah, and that's right. He finally told me what was going on. Hilariously, interestingly, I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Why didn't you just <laughs> tell me? And, and yeah. actually, what was really interesting was it kind of, it, there was a couple of things that he had taught me in therapy that were really interesting that, that were coming true. One of them was that he said, it's so much easier to depend on substances because people are so unstable and you, and you can't depend yeah. on people and they're human and they have problems. Yeah. So that was really interesting to see that, that that's part of what happened. But there was something else really interesting that, that I think helped me through it, which was, he always said to me when I was trying to figure out how to deal with getting sober and smoke free, he always said, lead the least secretive life you can. Yeah. That sort of became a mantra. And I already had studied confessional poetry and was already, but that really became a mantra where I'm just so honest. I'm as honest as I possibly can be. And interestingly, one of the ways that I didn't, you know, that I wasn't secret is anybody who asked, I just told them what was going on because I yeah. was just kind of a basket case and I was very upset but with him. And I just talked about it and we knew people in common and I just yeah. talked about it and I said, I'm mad at him. He's a jerk. And yeah. I was very open about it. So eventually when he apologized, I said to him, are you just apologizing because you want me to shut up because we have mutual <laughs> friends and you don't want me to say anything bad about you? And he said, yeah, yeah shut up already. <laughs> and I said, and, and then I got upset and I said, is that the only reason? And he said, no, but things coexist. But yeah. what I realized is the advice that he gave me to lead the least secretive life you can is a actually wound up pushing him to apologize to me without me even realizing it because the fact that I was so open about it definitely, you know, it got back to him that I was upset with him and that, yeah. you know, and interestingly, he could no longer do what he was doing in the way that he taught me. He could no longer do what he was doing and get away with it. He had to change also. Yeah. So that, that turned out to be very excellent advice that he gave me, lead the least secret yeah. life. You know, the thing that the thing that really touched me in that scene was was it, it seemed to be was when he opened up and explained more of what was going on for him, you recognized his suffering and you your, your compassion for his situation, the understanding that 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 gave you seemed to melt you a little bit. And, and then um, I, I'm imagining that created a safe environment for him also to, to really say, oh, I'm genuinely sorry I hurt you. And so even though the betrayal happened and you were hurt and, and he was um, obviously probably hurting from, from losing your friendship at the time, but in that facing everyone seeing the same things, everyone seeing the humanity of the situation, it seemed to melt the the rift. Something else that was really the best thing about it, which is sort of at the end of the book, The Forgiveness Store, is that, okay, so we we talked it out. And, you know, I talk about in the book, there's four elements of a good apology. And he gave me exactly the yeah. four elements 
a good apology, but so what was the reparation going to be? So at this point, I didn't really want to go back to seeing, to paying him to be my therapist because I thought, you know, his life is a mess and I'm over this already, but I also didn't want to let go. So at that particular moment, I said to him, we had started trying to write an addiction book together years before and nothing had happened with it. So at that moment, I said to him, why don't we go back and finish the, why don't we go back and finish the addiction book? Because in my mind, I thought, well, that would be a great way that we could work together on positive things and we could still be in each other's life in a great way. So yeah. he was he was shocked. So he's like, of course, let's do it. So then not only did did it sell, but it became a New York Times bestseller. So right. so number one, that was a great that was a great argument for to, to show how fruitful forgiveness could be. Yeah. Which was so, but the other thing that was really interesting, which somebody said to me, is a lot of times if you when you end therapy, a really good way to end therapy is to kind of take some time to go over what you learned together and what changed. And so what was so cool was it actually allowed us to relive the addiction therapy that we'd done together over the years that really wound up helping me so much, but also it was out of ways because his, you know, he came, his mother was a raging alcoholic and he was a chain smoker himself. And so healing was, was sort of healing other people was, was, was sort of his own healing and so it wound up being this this extremely positive experience where we both were able to get back in touch with what the doing good in the world and helping each other because he'd always wanted to write. So yeah, so it was it was actually a beautiful experience. And and I was so happy at the end. Forgiveness store took 10 years to write. And part of the reason was that I really wanted to make sure that I didn't want to say anything negative about therapy or negative about a therapist who'd helped me so much. Yeah. So I really wanted to wait until there was wisdom or until there was there was there was a reason again that would help us do good in the world. So so yeah. I was really lucky that, that did happen. Yeah, and also uh, what I what I can see is that the relationship came back on a kind of a mutual footing rather than him having all the power and and you being the patient. As the therapy came to an end, your ability to hold your own feelings, you know, had already grown to the point where the therapeutic relationship kind of wasn't necessary anymore and you and it became more of a mutual collaboration. I really like that. I will you're right, but I will say that to this day I have a lot of gratitude for the way that he did the addiction therapy, which was very non-traditional and a little crazy. But what happens is that you need a higher power or you need a sponsor or a teacher or a mentor. You do sort of have to surrender yourself because quitting addiction meant letting go of every single technique and behavioral pattern that I had in my whole life. Yeah. I had to let go of it all. And I would not have been able to do, some people can do it with AA groups because that, that you have a higher power, you have a sponsor, you have sort of a new family, you know, and I know people that do that every day, but I never responded well to groups because I'm from a big family and that was part of the problem. <laughs> and so I'm really glad that he was as, you know, as authoritative as he was with the addiction stuff. I'm really glad it happened the way that it did because, and part of my problem in other therapy in the past, even though I had brilliant shrinks, was you really need somebody who is an expert at addiction. It's just its own animal. It's yeah. regular therapy doesn't apply. The same with trauma. Yeah. You can't, it's not interchangeable. So I was very lucky that he understood the role that he had to play. And I will say, I've done the same with, I have students who I help get off, I help get off drugs and alcohol. And I will say, I play a similar role. I will just say yeah. to them, you're not allowed to do that. Stop going to bars. You have to do this. And I will, of course, try to get them into addiction therapy or AA meetings or NA meetings or anything that will help them. 
but there, it, interestingly, there does have to be sort of an authoritative voice saying that is not cool. That's yeah. a horrible thing. Somebody that you trust has to say to you, look, I love you. I want you to be successful. You're never going to get anything you want if you keep polluting your brain with that crap. And it's funny because now I will, I'll be similar. I'll, I'll speak to people the way that he spoke to me. If, you know, if they're students or if they're someone who says to me, I want your help yeah. with the addiction, you know, I mm -hmm. will definitely do that. And it, and it, and it was a miracle. And I had tried everything else in the world for many years. And that really is what worked. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a really you know insightful journey that you you've been through, and I, I really want to bring this to a close because I know that our time is short now. We we need to to come to an end, but I'd I'd like to ask you two questions, and uh, basically, in a way, we, I know we've covered some of it, but I'd, if we can maybe summarize, I wonder if you could tell me if you had to give a, a definition of addiction, what would you what would that be for you? Well, so it would be an obsessive behavior that involves something self-destructive that you can't stop on your own. Yeah. Right. You know, and by the way, there's nothing, you know, some people can smoke a joint once a week or have a couple martinis or do even do cocaine or overeat and then just stop and they won't do it for another week or they won't do it for another month and they don't have a problem. Whereas, you know, for a true addict, they can't stop on their own. It's really, it's trying to stop on your own is very painful. So that's right. a good, that's right. a good definition. Yeah. And, and in terms of becoming free of addiction, in terms of the freedom aspect, what would, what would your definition of freedom be? Well, I'll tell you something that, that a lot of people don't know that I didn't know, which is that aside from maybe smoking and alcohol or drugs not being healthy for you, a lot of people don't realize that they could keep you from getting every single thing you want in your life. And that's what, that's, that's what happened with me that there were all these things that I want wanted in life, which involved, you know, having a loving relationship with my husband and being financially successful and publishing books and artistically taking my work further. And I did not realize that the smoking and the drinking and the toking was getting in the way. It was a blockade for getting everything that I wanted. And so what was so fascinating to me, and I still, you can hear me, in fact, Sometimes when I do interviews, my my um my colleagues joke that I sound like I'm on cocaine because what's so bizarre, what happened was not only was it extremely liberating to get rid of the external addictions and the substances, but it's so exciting to to naturally be able to feel high and excited by life and to be right. able to yeah and so so I would say that um yeah so I would say that not only do I feel did I feel unbelievably liberated by quitting the addictions. But also it just, um, you know, it just led me to so many exciting things in my life that I didn't even realize I had blocked out. I didn't even know that. You know, right. the joke now is that, you know, because an, 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 addic an addictive person never stops being addictive. So the joke is now I'm addicted to email, book deals, book events, you know, so I, I even have to be careful with that because, yes. you know, the, the great line my, that, that the therapist said to me is, you have to be aware of all addictions because they take you out of yourself and you always have to go back to yourself. So mm. interestingly, I thought, well, how could book deals be a, be a bad thing? How could that be a negative addiction? And then what happened was I couldn't get a book deal for two years and I was going insane. And I right. thought, oh my God, look what happened. It's the same thing. It's taking me out of myself as if I'm not good enough on my own, unless I have this external thing that builds me up. And so then I had to sort of you know, do therapy on my head again to say, if I never publish any book the rest of my life, I'm still fine. And yeah. here are the techniques I have to use. And interestingly, the minute I did that, then I got another one. <laughs> yeah, so, so kind of what I'm hearing there is that freedom 
has to do with being comfortable in your own skin and enjoying your life without having to medicate it, so to speak, without the, the imprisoning qualities that or, that occur when, yeah, when the addiction is present. I always have to be vigilant because because before I know it, I have another addiction. So just for an example, during the during the pandemic, food, and it's funny because I have like these rules. Like if for an addict, it's easier to me to quit to quit whole food groups. Like so, I just no sugar or no bread products. But but then I'll like, you know, I could OD on protein, you know. So I just have to be careful. I always yeah. have to be vigilant and realize that my personality is always going to lead me to overdo it. And so I have to keep really strict with the rules. And I do, you know, to have I do I can email him or I have questions. I have core pillars and I have rules that I have to follow to you know to just um, you know to make sure that that you know, that it doesn't take over my life again. Yeah, yeah. Susan, this has been really eye-opening for me in terms of the power of individual therapy as a solution to addiction. And I just love hearing how your life has flourished through that journey. And um, sounds like you've got a lot of um, a lot of good things ahead and, um, and you're going to enjoy them. Yeah, and if anybody wants to contact me, I, addiction is one of my favourite subjects and I love helping people. It's uh, profsu123 at gmail.com. So profsu123 at gmail.com. That's my email. And by the way, I have a lot of students who write about addiction. Several of them have great addiction books out. So if anybody wants to hear, how can you how can you take your energy and, uh, you know, and all the addiction stuff and write about it in a way that's, you know, get published or that'll help you uh, help you make money or help you deal with it, people can email me and I'll be happy to Great. And we'll put all of your details in the show notes underneath. So once again, thank you very much. And um, I look forward to contacting you in the future and seeing how you go. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Great talking to you. You too. Bye. See you later. <laughs>